right, Kenneth Kelly, I really appreciate you for sitting down with us, talking about some amazing things. We're going to get right to the book, but before we do that, I want to get to Kenneth Kelly, the person. So for the people who don't know Kenneth Kelly, he's a banking executive and the CEO of Detroit-based First Independence Bank. I'm from Detroit, so I've been seeing this bank ever since, you know, I've been a young and growing up. And it's exciting and inspirational to know that the CEO is a black man that looks like me, that's somebody I can relate to. And I also wrote a book about something he's passionate about, dealing with some of the topics on financial literacy that we need to study in our community. Are you nationally recognized as an authority on federal banking policy? And you followed this by a career of 27 years at the Southern Company. So we want to talk about that a little bit leading up to where you're at now. But before we jump into the book, I want to get a little bit background on Kenneth Kelly. So where did you grow up? Um, did you grow up in, an, uh, in a neighborhood or a, a crime-infested neighborhood? Did you grow up in poverty, middle class, upper middle class? Did you inherit a bunch of money, right? So we want to get, we want to, get into that to know the man behind the book and behind the story. Well, James, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I know we've worked together on a couple of things outside of this converse, outside of this conversation, but looking forward to really spending some time with you. The best way I could sum it up is that I'm just a fortunate individual, James, to be very candid with you. Like a lot of other kids all across America, I grew up in small town Alabama. You follow Alabama. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I wouldn't equate where I grew up a street. It was a road. <laughs> it was one way. And so all of our the kids that lived in our neighborhood, we lived on that one road, so to speak. But we had a great time growing up, mm -hmm. great family values. I would tell people the same thing I've said even at the, the passing of one of my parents. We may not have been rich, but we were rich with love. Yes. And I would tell you that's at the core of who I am as a person today and the style and the way that I go about doing business. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just important to me. So all of my friends back in Eufaula, you know, I just love them to death because I learned a lot of what I am today in those early years, my primitive years growing up. So mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, high level, you know, when you think about me right now, what's important to me is being a parent. Mm -hmm. I have two kids. One's a senior at Florida A&M. The other is a sophomore at the University of Alabama. Okay. And so, you know, what comes with that, the privilege of being uh, a parent is, of course, being married. I've been married 27 years to my wife, Kim, who's based, who grew up in Mobile, Alabama. So at a high level, just know that those are the important traits about me. And when yeah. my legacy is passed, so to speak, that's where I would tell you to focus on how did we raise our kids and how do we lead as it relates to being married and being a father. Yes, I love that. So you went to school at the University of Alabama, correct? I did. I got my second degree there. I got okay. my first degree at Auburn University. Okay. And so like many of you who grew up even in Michigan, you know the rivalry between Michigan gonna... and Michigan State. I would tell you the rivalry between Auburn and the University of Alabama is like that, but a lot more intense. Yeah. For 364 days, in <laughs> some cases 365 days a year. And so... It was very, uh, I had the best of both worlds there. Both of those universities are great institutions. Mm -hmm. um, Auburn University is where I really grew up. I say I grew up there because I had two suitcases and an alarm clock when I showed up at my dorm. And so mm -hmm. there's nothing like leaving home for the very first time. And so my ability to really go there and to learn and to fly from that nest was important to my career. Mm -hmm. um, as I got out into the working world and spent a few years there, I had a chance to really go and work at the University of Alabama for a two-year assignment from my company at that point in time, Alabama mm -hmm. Power Company, loaned me to the university. 
And while I was there, I worked with the dean, Dean Barry Mason, and he suggested, you know what, you need to be in school while you're down here, and it was a yeah. great thought. So I ended up going through the executive MBA program, which is a wonderful program, and so those were the things mm -hmm. that set my educational foundation going forward. Now, that's, that's really important. I think, I think my, my generation, a lot of people, especially with social media and everything, people want things so fast, right? So the, the, the idea of getting a higher education, a lot of people are saying school doesn't matter, they're not teaching this in college, this, that, and the third. So what did you learn from your MBA program that led you into a fruitful career as a, a banking executive or just a, a leader in a company in general? Because a lot of people try to talk down on college or higher education because you can make all this money on YouTube and Instagram and right. Facebook now. So people are very short-sighted when it comes to investing in their education today. That's, that's a great question. I would tell you, it goes back to, let me go to my fundamental principles first, which is we all bloom differently at different times. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that. So I'm not saying you have to be uh, or go to get a college education to be successful, but I believe you ought to pursue what is naturally you know, inherent to you right. as you think about how do you grow and create a vocation to allow you to feed your family. So I, I firmly believe in that. But I will tell you, it does take time. I don't get to sit in this seat because I wished upon it one day. Um, this is a career journey to get to this seat. I would say it's equivalent to a marathon. So going back to my start, as I mentioned at Auburn, mm -hmm. it was about electrical engineering. And so that allowed me to really go into a business, learn a little bit about the business in how it operated. When I went to, and answering your question, when I finished up my MBA, it gave me a flavor for finance. Mm -hmm. And so when I left to go back into the company with my MBA, my first job was going to work in corporate finance. Right. And so that created a foundation that was very different than my engineering foundation that allowed me many years later to get involved in things that were mergers and acquisitions, which set me up for being able to sit into this seat. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I um, admire about you is um, I don't want to gloss over the 27-year career you had with Southern. I think that shows a lot of consistency. That shows leadership. Um, and that's something that we're lacking today in our community is, you know, a lot of people, millennials are jumping around jobs. One job, you, you know, you're here for six months. You don't get what you want. You, you're, you're on to the next. You try to start a business. That don't work. You're on to the next. So... Um, what are some things that you learned throughout your career that kept you going? I know it wasn't all, um, I know it wasn't all good and obviously not all bad. So what are some things that you learned that allow you to persist uh, sure. and build a resume as good as that? It, it was principle centered. That's the word that I would use based on the question that I heard you ask. And so, yes, I would say times have evolved and maybe in this environment, a younger generation probably doesn't want to work for one company for such a long time. Mm -hmm. But I would tell you what comes with that is the relationship capital, is the knowledge capital in such a way that you're able to leverage it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be successful otherwise, mm -hmm. but what I found and what was going to work for me was being able to really build that longevity, that commitment, that foundation in such a way that I could capitalize on it and even what I'm doing today. Um, if you look at the things that we're doing inside of the bank under my leadership, a lot of it is very similar to what I learned inside of Southern Company. Um, mm -hmm. Talking about things like the circle of life, keeping safety number one in terms of our employees and what we do in the banking space every day. So mm -hmm. I would tell you, for me, it worked out because it fit my personality. 
right. um, to be in a place for a long period of time. And to your point, every day is not going to be a great day, mm -hmm. just to be candid with you. No champion you've ever seen um, will tell you every day was glorious. I was always on top. They had to go through some peaks and valleys in that process mm -hmm. because oftentimes you're going to learn the most from those opportunities where it was not as much fun, if yeah. I could use that term loosely. Yeah, so the book, let's jump right into it, Prepare Before I Let Go, Preserving Your Possessions Through Proper Planning. Now, what led you to write this book? It, was it something that happened to you or a family member, close friend, that led you to think about um, proper estate planning, that you could package something like this, a phenomenal book, and deliver to you know the community and everyone at large to get this type of information? Because... Estate planning isn't a sexy topic, but reading the book and all of the stories and everything that you put in together, and we're going to get into some of mm -hmm. them like we talked offline, you made it very easy to read and very easy to make me feel like, oh, I can actually approach my family and have this conversation um, and, and not feel awkward. So right. how did you get into estate planning and writing even about estate planning? So, so let's start with a topic really quickly to really hopefully not bring back up during this discussion. Mm -hmm. I don't even call it estate planning. Okay. So let's go back to my upbringing. As I talked about, I grew up on that road, Gamage Road. I wrote that book with the spirit of I would want to talk to any of my friends that I grew up on that street with. So very fundamental, very basic, and I'm glad that you've gotten that. But the term that I typically use is legacy planning. Okay. Right? All of us will have a legacy, good or bad, rich or poor, or indifferent. Mm -hmm. We will have whatever that is, that legacy is going to be your legacy. And so what I wanted to do with this book was really just demonstrate, as we talk a lot about the wealth gap and talking about the reason I got into writing this book, we talk a lot about the wealth gap, but you got to tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. And there's a story that right now we need to close, which is this story of not taking care of our business and passing it along in a proper manner. Mm -hmm. And so what I found is that the will rate in the African-American community is entirely too low. It's about 30%. And there are several studies we can talk about. I started the book out with the Gallup study, yeah. the one from Black Enterprise and Earl Graves, et cetera. But the point I'm making is that all of our families have seen some aspect of the turmoil that takes place when we don't apply principles that I wrote about in that book. So James, as you ask about that, for me, it was really about how can I create a message, not only to myself and to my family, but to the rest of America and specifically to African Americans, mm -hmm. that you can make a difference if you start thinking about your legacy today, not something that will just be taken care of at some point in time in the future. So that's the way and that's the mindset that I had in writing this book. Yeah. And one of the things, and I I'm going through the book, if you guys can hear the pages, because I, when I read, I circle a lot of things because I go back and revisit books time to time, and I want to make sure I get the points. One of the things, and I'm, I'm going to read it in your quote, it's very important for each of us to ensure that the possessions and things we acquire throughout our life, regardless of how little or small they may be. And I want to stop right there because a lot of people in the African-American community think, I don't have enough. I only have a car, a house and maybe a watch that I bought, you know, when I got, got my promotion. That's all I have. Why do I have to sit down with an attorney, create a will, create a trust, and all I have is, you know, a house and a car and a few items that are going to get passed on? Why do I need to do that? 
Well, James, you said it and summed it up. The, the reality is we oftentimes don't think enough of our things that we have that we spent all of our lives working for. Think about that. Mm -hmm. when, when someone passes at 70 or 80 or 60 or 40, whatever they've worked for are the possessions that are remaining. And what I am suggesting is there should be an orderly transition associated with those things. Even as small as they may be, and, and I will tell a story about Osceola McCarthy later, yeah. but the point I would make here to drive home your question is that when you read about the story, Master P, in the book, he got started with a small amount of dollars, somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000, mm -hmm. that was really an outcome associated with the loss of his grandfather. Mm -hmm. and, and think about what he has done in our country and in, in business today. Mm -hmm. Been phenomenal. $10,000, So some people may say, you know, that's not a lot of money. But when you're looking to plant the right seed, that could be just the right seed amount that could really launch someone like Master P. Mm -hmm. And so to your point, regardless of if you're a custodian or a CEO or engineer or doctor or nurse, whatever that may be, you have spent a tremendous amount of time acquiring, going to work typically 40 hours a week to acquire what you've acquired. Mm -hmm. My suggestion to you is be sure it gets to the loved ones that you care about the way you want it to get to them. So that could be family members and or charity. Mm -hmm. that, and that's the messaging that's in the book. Yeah, so um, a lot of people don't even understand what the probate court is and how it affects their wealth whenever they're trying to um, transfer assets or whatever they have onto the next generation. And you spoke about it in the book. So could you tell us the difference or tell us what a probate like the probate court is, what purpose does it serve, and how it helps or hinders um, assets going on to the next generation? Yeah, for many people, uh, a probate process is directly related to having a will. That will has to be filed in the probate process and carried out through, through probate. Uh, one reason many people set up a trust is it typically mm -hmm. doesn't have to become part of the open record in going through the probate process. So I don't want to make that complicated to be candid with you, mm -hmm. but what I do want to do is to suggest that if you don't plan things properly, that the probate process really becomes the decider, if I could use a term by George W. Bush, <laughs> it becomes the decider of what happens with the things that you care about. Now, in many cases, we've probably seen many families where, you know, you think it's not a lot, but you know, here and there, you just go get grandmama's coat and someone gets a shotgun from grandfather, et cetera, yeah. and don't think a big deal about it. But the point I want to make is that having those things itemized, having those things put in an orderly process ensures that the work and the, the life you've given to acquire those things go to the people that you care about. So probate becomes really, it intercedes what you may have want want it to take place yeah. if you don't plan those things properly, and that's why it's so important to do that. And as you and I know, one of the terrible outcomes of this is watching a family become extremely fractured over things that in some cases not be of high monetary value, yeah. but be of sentimental value such that you know family members may not even speak going forward. Yes. So those are the kinds of things I write about to talk about why it's important to go ahead and lay that out in such a manner that you don't leave that level of chaos behind you. Um, you, just, you just made me think of something just reading the book. You had a personal situation that you even talked about in the book when you talked about um, the passing of your mom and yes. how it was something that wasn't monetary value, but it was something that was very sentimental value. 
And you kind of took the high road and let your sister. I'm gonna let you tell the story. Yeah, I, I don't mind telling that story. I wrote about it with intent, and I'm gonna tell everybody. My sister read the story. We both laugh about it, yeah. and we had some further laughs even behind it. So this is not one of those that's contentious. But what I want to do is just demonstrate how easy it is for that to happen to any family. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it, you know, we lost our mother, and it was the two of us to have to deal with that. And of all the things in the house, cars mom's purses, furs, everything in the house, china, you name it. The only thing that we really had what I would call a dispute about was a mirror. Mm -hmm. And as I write about in the book, I can't really explain why I wanted that mirror. <laughs> I can't explain maybe why she wanted that mirror. But here's what I could tell you. Yes, she did. She won the battle on that particular one, James, and you're right about that. And what I have noticed in every home that she's been in, that mirror has been up in that house. Yeah. Now, I have a mirror about the same size of that one that came out of my mother's house. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, and I don't mind telling this story, it's currently in my attic at my home. And so right. it, it was deserving that she received that mirror to be candid with you. But the point I'm making is that was something that was of sentimental value. Right. And it was one of those that, to be candid, you could very easily get emotional about. Right. And sometimes, as you know, in human nature, it not, it's not necessarily about what you were trying to get. It becomes about the fight. And yeah. what I wanted to demonstrate in that book, especially as we think about heirs, is that sometimes you can get into a mindset of just wanting to win that you really lose the war, so to speak. And that yeah. was the reason for me sharing that story in the book. Yeah, that was a very insightful story because a lot of times people think about, one, when they don't do the planning, they're like, well, we don't have anything to transfer over. But let's say they even do do the planning, they don't understand how sentimental and small things like your mom's um, chain or your dad's Rolex watch that he yes. had since the 80s or whatever, yes. how sentimental that could be. And it's like, yeah, it might not be worth three, four million dollars, um, but it's something that's sentimental that two brothers or two sisters or whoever will fight over. And that small thing can cause someone to not speak. Right. You know, for years, and th that can just ruin a whole relationship. And you're supposed to be yeah. celebrating this person that That's passed right. on, and now you're arguing over something that um, isn't of monetary value, but it's sentimental value, which is worth more than money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And oftentimes, as you know, as I talked about, you know, granddad's shotgun or, you know, grandmother's fur and those kinds of things, or, you know, you think about those real valuable things yeah. related to cooking, like, cast iron skillet, right? Those are all things that really mean a lot to us because of the times that we celebrate with them. And sometimes it even happens in the case where, you know, one sibling may give something to a parent mm -hmm. and the other sibling say, oh, that was dad, so he wanted me to have it, but the other one may have given it to him. We've seen right. just a myriad of things take place in such a manner that really it creates chaos. And so why I'm writing about these topics is to be sure that we can be a lot more mindful of them and thoughtful in the way we make our decisions. Now, you, you highlighted a study that says 66% of black Americans walking around with no plan to transfer their assets after death. So meaning they don't have a will, a trust, or anything set up. That's um, correct. But one of the things you highlighted that I want to talk about is it's not necessarily a race thing. It's more of a social economic thing. And you, you talked about a story of a black man and a white man having the same net worth, mm -hmm. they are more likely to have planning and legacy planning and estate planning put in place compared to a black man and a white man that make $50,000 or worth $50,000. Yeah. 
right. they are more likely to not have it. And it's not necessarily a black or white thing. Um, it's more so a social economic thing. So could you talk about that yeah, a little I, bit? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that we use the example in the book of about five million of those two men who will probably behave very similarly. So what we also know that is it's directly related to experience and education. Mm -hmm. So that's why I wrote the book. It's another form of creating an educated opportunity for understanding what really needs to be taken care of at the family level for each of us. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you and raise my hand, I'm, I'm, mine isn't perfect to be candid with you. And I may have shared some of those in the book and things we're still working on. But the point is that part of my writing this book is to create, as you used the word earlier, a level of, I'll call it financial awareness mm -hmm. and or financial literacy that some use that term yeah. that will allow us to say you know what I need to have a will I need to have a living will or health care directive as it's known mm -hmm. or I need to have a power of attorney because these things are important to my family mm -hmm. now one of the the, the, the large and I, and I don't even want to say large one of the big news stories over the last few years when it comes to estate planning or legacy planning mm -hmm. was Chadwick Boseman. Mm -hmm. Now, Chadwick Boseman, um, for the people who don't know, actor most known for, um, well, I know him for Jackie Robinson. Right, right. But he's most known for Black like Panther. Panther. Right. Right? And it says he was battling a fight against colon cancer for four years. Um, he wasn't married at the time when he first started battling. He got married leading up to his death, so probably around that same year when he died, he got married. So my question with you studying this, here's a man, successful, wealthy, fighting a silent battle of colon cancer, and yet still didn't prepare a will, a trust. And this is someone that's in that upper economic, um, socioeconomic background. So. What do you think, just based off your studies, what do you think was going through the mind, or what goes through the mind of individuals in this situation? You obviously don't have to speak to Chadwick Boseman. Right. But just... Let, let's talk about that in general. And let me say mm -hmm. this, too, and I write about this in the book. Everyone that we illustrated in the book, um, I didn't have any direct discussions with any of their family members. Mm -hmm. I extracted from public record what was said or what was written about them to demonstrate Perfect. that we were not invading anyone's privacy and or we were not really telling any secrets, if you want to call it that. Right. Because that will happen to any of us. It becomes public record when that happens. And so, and let me say the second point, which is each of the individuals I wrote about specifically, I have a level of high regard and respect for them yes. as individuals. So yes. this is not to say that this is a bad person. The intent was to illustrate how it can happen to any of us, yes. especially if it happens to the people that we like and we, we admire. Like even our superheroes. Right. That's right. We, we admire. Yes. And so I'll even share, as you know, in the story, I even talked about that happening to my own family, mm -hmm. right? And, and I won't get into details of that. Someone will have to purchase the book to get that story. <laughs> but the point I'm making is that it can happen to all of us. And so in the middle part of our book, I, the book, I talk about the procrastination that happens to all of us and our own inability to deal with our mortality. Mm -hmm. Even when we know we're probably on our deathbed, it is very, very difficult to say that 
I'm a mortal being and that I am going to pass. Yes. Even in my writing of this book, just to be very clear, it took me time to go from, yes, I know. And I had a trust in place over a decade ago, mm -hmm. but it still took more time to think about what does this really mean now that I have to write about it. Yes. And so what I describe in the book, even in that process of getting your mind right, and getting yourself ready to even think about this is a process. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about things such as, what do you want your final service to look like? Most of us don't want to think about that, but the reality is that's something that you should think about. Yes. Um, I even did research to, to get to this point of going to a funeral home and talking to funeral directors. What's the process like? Now, I will tell you, I've dealt with the passing of two parents, so I've dealt with funeral homes before, mm -hmm. but I will tell you there's nothing, I can't even describe the emotional state you're in when that happens. And for me to go during when I was writing this book was a very different experience. And all I'm saying is that oftentimes, James, to your question, the best way we deal with this issue of, of our mortality is to not deal with it. Yeah, just avoid, the problem. Act like just it's avoid it. Just to stick your head in the sand, assume, well, somebody else will figure it out. They know what I want. They know what, they, you know, you're so superimposing your thinking onto others. And that's really not an effective planning process. And so mm -hmm. the reason I really wrote this book was also to help all of us become comfortable with knowing that one day I'm not going to be here. And I will share a story even in the book that I write to, to really summarize that and it's associated with the Black Panther. So mm -hmm. um, if you recall in the first movie or the Black Panther, there's a scene where there's a, a, a line from his father that I am preparing you to live without me. Yeah. And the irony of all of that is I had shared that with my kids. My goal as a father is to prepare them to live without me. Mm -hmm. And so when we heard that in the movie, we all just smiled because it was something that they said right off after we got back in the car. That's exactly what you've said, Dad. Yeah. And so I write about that even in the book because I think we have to become a lot more comfortable with this topic. Mm -hmm. We've got to figure out how can I have a constructive conversation with my kids in such a way that they're not threatened that, oh, dad is about to die tomorrow because right. he talked about it, but understand what is important and why he's teaching the principles that he's teaching, why he's training them the way that he's training them, because the ultimate goal, again, if life fulfills his natural process, mm -hmm. will be for a parent to lead before their children. Mm -hmm. And so to your question, um, in writing about all of those individuals, I, one, wanted to do it in such a way that was respectful of them as individuals. Yes. But secondly, to demonstrate it can happen to all of us and, and creating a sense of commonality. And so I even write about the school teacher who um, passed away without a will, two kids. You know, as it goes through probate, as we talked about earlier, they get a small amount of the value of that house. Yes. That house is flipped and sold for almost 10 times the value that they got to split up as the heirs of that property. Yes. That's why it's important to have a will and be sure that you have more control over how things happen as opposed to it having to be done through the probate process. Yes, now, um, one of the things that is public record that came out about the, the Chadwick Bozeman situation was um, the estate was worth around $3.8 million and he just got married so the young lady who he got married to, she was the person that was over the estate. Now, 
legally, she was the one that could just walk away with all the assets, but she decided to split it with his family, which was a great thing to do. But one of the things that people um, were talking about when we posted this up on, um, on our platform was, what is all these fees and, and, and all this stuff associated with 3.8 million, but they ended up splitting 2.3 million? Right. So where is that 1.5 million? And I think you did a, a great um, deed in the book by lay, laying out a lot of the fees that go with being in the right. Court. So and just to be very clear, when I finished the book, the ending of the story you just described regarding Chad Bozeman had not taken place. Yeah. So I finished the book prior to that. I think where we left off with the book regarding that particular story is that um, his wife had been named the executrix to move forward with it at that point in time. That might have been about the November time frame of 2020. Yes. Um, it's what we ended up, if I recall, writing about. And so what you just reported is now more new news about that. But what I also did with several of the others is to show that how it can erode over time. And what you exactly alluding to is, at the end of the day, you've got to pay a lawyer to go and get the process started for you to become the executor when there is not a will. Mm -hmm. and, and believe you me, those are not inexpensive. Let me be clear about that. So one example in the book, we documented. At the time Prince died in 2016 without a will, I believe I may have documented that around 2019 or 2020, somewhere in that time frame. Mm -hmm. The attorneys alone in the Prince case had billed $10 million to his estate. Yes. Just the attorneys. That's not accountants. That's not other business people. It's just the attorneys alone. And so mm -hmm. the point I'm making is that that's the expensive part of that when it's not in your control of how do you go about really sizing up the estate? How do you go about managing the estate, et cetera? It's now or was not in the hands of anyone Prince decided to be candid with you. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the problem and challenge is it gives others an opportunity to really um, go through your affairs and to be candid. They get to make decisions of how, you know, the, those outcomes will, will turn out. And so the Prince story, I believe two of his heirs passed away before they even got it settled. There's been some discussion about his estate being settled yeah. in the last year now. I haven't heard the final on that, but the point is, had that been done more like Michael Jackson, who I write about in the book, yes. it would have been a completely different outcome. And maybe that 10 million could have gone to a charity or music academy, or, you know, his what turned out to be heirs at this point in time. Yes. So. And, and I think in, in the new news and the update on Prince, um, don't quote me because I don't have it pulled up, but um, we posted about it, and I believe he didn't have any kids. Correct. And he was not married. So it went in, so it went to, like, his half-sisters. He had, like, his five siblings. or six half-siblings mm -hmm. uh, from his from a parent side of the family. Right. And... They all basically split the money minus the fees and the lawyer fees or whatever associated with the estate, and they pretty much split it. So um, that's kind of the update on that. One of the things that you kind of harped on, um, I don't know what chapter it was, but you talked about like beneficiaries and how individuals who remarry and are dating um, up until a certain point and things like that. A lot of times, if you're dating someone or you get remarried and you don't update your benefits and you pass away, your assets can legally 
they legally go back to your ex-wife or your ex-husband. So could you talk about that and how... Yeah, th that's one of the unfortunate cases we've seen. Um, when I say unfortunate, meaning that, again, didn't go to the people you probably had in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen cases where individuals have, as you just described, married, moved on, second wife, or even third in some cases where the beneficiaries of policies were not updated. And guess what? Those individuals are still the beneficiaries of those policies. Yeah. And so those things haven't been updated. And oftentimes, back to the procrastination, those are topics we don't want to talk about because they create conflict, um, especially in a, in a new relationship and or if you've got kids by first wives, et cetera. And so what people do is stick their head in the sand and avoid them. But uh, those kinds of challenges are real. They happen every day. Mm -hmm. I've seen cases where a, a spouse, um, you know, is not listed as the beneficiary and lose the ability to really what I would call identify with the retirement benefits associated with um, her loved one. And so those are all challenges and things I think we need to talk more about because let's just face it, in the reality of where someone, let's just say they're dating or not married and not li legal, listed legally on the beneficiary list, as you just described, then guess what happens? Those funds go back into the pot. So someone's worked 40 years or 30 years for a retirement and they don't have the ability to pass that retirement on properly, um, those kind of go back in the pool. You get the loss, you lose all those benefits. So you multiply that. Um, let's just say it's $40,000 a year. may not be a lot of yeah. money by some, but still it's a lot of money. You multiply that times 15 to 20 years that a spouse may live to receive those. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. And that's the kind of wealth we need to be thinking about. I will call it residual wealth, where someone's worked all of their life, Maybe they left, but the reality is they didn't have the air to properly pass that on or the paperwork wasn't done properly. And you have to say no to those individuals because, again, they may not have been legally married, et cetera. And so those can be problems, too. So, yes, we wrote a little bit about those to, again, create the opportunity to have discussions because there should be no reason to have those outcomes unless they are planned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I think the work that you're doing, especially around this book and, and um, your, your other website and things like that, we're going to talk about that a little later. But I think this, if the black communities just adopted the principles taught in this book and don't do nothing else, I think we can close the wealth gap by at least 20 to 30% over the next few generations just by simply passing on the assets that we currently have this is not talking about any reparations bill, any nothing. Right. Just by doing the proper planning and estate planning and legacy building and the legacy planning that you're talking about, we can pass a lot of this on. And the reason I say that is because um, I, I went to college. I have a lot of black friends, a lot of white friends. And when I was growing up, before I got in college, the perception of wealthier families mm -hmm. or even white families or any other family that is wealthier than the, the family I grew up in, my perception was they all sitting at dinner, they're having a conference call every two weeks about <laughs> who's going to do this. They're sitting there teaching little Johnny how to run um, accounting and all of that at the dinner table. That was my perception. But then when I started getting around a lot of wealthier individuals, I realized that was just incorrect, and that's not the proper way to approach um, legacy planning or estate planning when it comes to 
a family. So could you talk about, you know, one of the things you learn and one of the things you guys recommend when it comes to talking about estate planning? Yeah, I, I, to your point, I think, you know, oftentimes when you're, quote, not in the room, it always comes across different than when you're in the room, yeah. which I heard you just describe. Uh, in a lot of ways, wealthy people are normal people just like all of us. Mm -hmm. What they have done in most cases is demonstrated the determination and the capacity to try to generate funds in a way that they can keep a sizable portion of their funds relative to the funds they generate. Mm -hmm. So going back to your point, most wealthy people create wealth over time. They don't become an overnight success. In fact, I will uh, pretend that if someone is likely to become an overnight success, they're likely to, be, to lose it just as fast. Yes. The lottery is a good example of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so the point you're making is the principles of, of, of determination and how do you go about that. I think all of us can demonstrate no matter what, and I want to come back to Ocella McCarthy, so remind me to do that. Mm -hmm. In demonstrating you don't have to be wealthy, to demonstrate the principles associated with wealth. Mm -hmm. But to your point, no, it, most families don't run like a business. They don't sit around the table like some of the things we may have seen on TV yeah. with, with the sitcoms where it sounds like, you know, uh, I'll go back to, oh, when I grew up under Dallas and Jr. and Bobby Ewan where, you know, the, the dad is kind of pointing them. That's when they are adults. But in yeah. most cases, families are trying to raise their kids just like normal people like most of us. Things that's different is that, you know, there are some principles like in the book, The Millionaire Next Door. Mm -hmm. um, my son has been reading that book for now almost 10 years. The point is it teaches the principles of most of the times to become a millionaire, you don't want to necessarily look like a millionaire. Mm -hmm. It's the person next door who may drive a Chevrolet as opposed to a Cadillac. And so to your point, I would say to the listening audience, it is within all of us to be successful with creating a legacy. And when I close our conversation, I'm gonna talk about Ocella McCarthy to prove that point. Great question. Yeah, so I think one of the things, and just talking to a lot of people, cause I have a trust, I have life insurance, I have all the things in order. And as I grow my wealth and grow my business and I have life experiences, I would have to sit down with my attorney and update those things. Right. So even people who are doing the proper planning, like, um, John Singleton, he did the proper planning, but it just wasn't updated. Correct. Kobe Bryant, when he, um, when he um, unfortunately passed away, he had a little baby that was probably about one or two years old yeah. that was left out of the estate because they just probably didn't, up, they didn't update and put the little girl in the estate. Right. And then they had to petition through probate, which probably cost them millions of dollars, to get her into that estate. Right. So... I think a lot of times, even if people do the proper planning or they seek professional mm -hmm. help, it might be that trust factor that they don't really have. And let's say they move on, they're not working with that attorney anymore or whatever. And moving on and getting a new attorney or getting updated or getting somebody once their wealth grows that can help them understand what they need to do moving forward I think there, that's a big gap in terms of our community is trusting someone to go to that next level. You might have an attorney when you are worth $100,000, but that's not the same attorney you need to use when you're worth $50 million. Right, right. And I think I we have an issue with that update and trusting new people. Once you get some money, 
it's that trust factor. <laughs> like, no, I want to stick around with the people that I came up with. Right, right. Well, the, uh, everything you mentioned can be a factor, but the, the principal factor in the question that you're bringing up is this legacy planning has to be routine. Mm -hmm. And for most, even as I write about it in the book, you want to put that on a periodic basis. But to your point, there are simple things that can happen in life. Having a child, getting divorced, as we just talked about a moment ago, that when you're going through it, you're not thinking about, oh, by the way, I need to update my legacy documents. Right. Um, and so what happens is you get caught without them. Now, you know, in the case of Kobe Bryant, yes, their, their youngest child was not, quote, listed because the child was within a year old or so, yeah. I can't remember, which, you know, is not uncommon. Mm -hmm. But in the other extreme, let's just use that we write about there, John Singleton, mm -hmm. you know, he had that done. And let me just say, John's a hero of mine. I mean, yeah, that I was my John coming Singleton. of age. Yeah. Boys in the hood. I mean, that was <laughs> coming of age. And so when I talked about Gamage Road, we were like that street where the guy was throwing the football. We played football in the street on yeah. the road. So he, he's a hero of mine, but my point is what we write about in the book, he had only one of his kids listed in his, in his will from the early 90s, not having it updated to include all of the kids, which is, was a challenge. And then secondly, the component that we write about is at the point in time of his incapacitation, mm -hmm. he did not have a living will or health care directive as we, we call it. And so that created tension even before his demise with who was going to make decisions on his behalf because he didn't have a living will or health care directive. Right. And I want to get to some um, situations where legacy planning turned, it, it, it turned out for the better, right? So right. You, you mentioned the young lady that you wanted to talk about. Um, so let's talk about her um, who was able to do it right and leave money for her family and a foundation. Well, let me, let me, before we go there, let me get to another one we talked about earlier, which is Michael Jackson. Okay. So Michael Jackson, um, we, we talk about him later in the book because early and later, only because he did a really phenomenal job in the way that he put things together and his trust and et cetera. And to, my, to the point, I don't think we've heard a lot of noise about his affairs in that regard. Right. And so, you know, the point is he had the right level of counseling and also executed on that counseling in such a way that it didn't become what normally individuals would say is tabloid. And, and one other example I think we want to illustrate of how, going back to what little can produce big fruit, Jimi Hendrix, who passed away at the time, he may have been worth what was $20,000, and this is, you know, um, 60s, early right. 70s, and which is probably equivalent to about $100,000-plus now. But the reality is his estate so valuable. His estate's now been projected to be worth 150 to $175 million. Wow. Right? And so my point is, what if someone said, you know, oh, it was only worth 20000 and kind of didn't pay attention to the royalties, didn't take care of the things they needed to take care of and watch that get squandered. And to your point earlier, now we see that that estate has basically become a multi- $100 million estate. And right. so the point is, you never know what where the goal may be. And I'm going to give you another example to prove a point or a question you ask about. Uh, air property mm -hmm. in the African-American community has been tragic. Um, I'll raise my hand. I've seen it on both sides of the family, where land is not properly passed. And I'm not talking about two acres or five. In some cases, it could be 20 or it could be 100. 
or, or more. And so what we have seen is the ownership of land in this country by African-Americans, some projected to have been as high as 15 million acres yeah. in this country. Uh, it's projected to be down around two. Some of that has been lost because many left and moved to places like Detroit, where both of you are from, mm -hmm. um, and where I you know, work now. But the reality is because a lot of that land did not pass properly, it became air property, which means you can't get title to it and you can't take care of it in such a way that financially you unlock it. Mm -hmm. And a prime example of that, I want to get to a, another prime example of why that's important. During Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, um, there were quite a few properties that were owned by individuals who had passed on and it was now air property. Yeah. Guess what? Those properties did not qualify for relief from the federal agencies. Mm -hmm. So they didn't get a chance to rebuild and to get if you want to call it the assistance that many others got because the property was in Big Mama's name. It wasn't in the person living in the house name or right. in someone's name properly properly titled. Mm -hmm. So I want to share that that's important as we move forward. And then to your question, if you're ready for me to go there with Ocella McCarthy and we close out because I really yeah. want to close telling her story. Yeah. So Ocella McCarthy, if many of you don't know her, you can feel free to Google her in listening to this or or read the book about her and why what she did was so extraordinary. This was a lady um, who worked all of her life as a washerwoman. Mm -hmm. She basically just washed individuals' clothing to make a living. To our knowledge, she never owned a vehicle, never owned a car. In the latter years of her life, so she was still living when this happened, she basically donated the equivalent of about $150,000 to the University of Southern Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So inspiring that a lady of meager means, again, washing clothes to $150,000, that the President of the United States acknowledged her, President Bill Clinton at that point in time. Right. And in the midst of acknowledging her, many other reporters were asking questions about her life and how did she do this and why did she do it? And those scholarships were set up for African-American students, which is basically in perpetuity now at the University of Southern Mississippi. Mm -hmm. A reporter asked her, well, didn't you want to do something for yourself with all of that money? And she looked at the reporter and basically said, I just did. <laughs> you know, for me, every time I tell that story, I get chills because I think about the self-sacrifice that she demonstrated back to principles of storing her pennies, so to speak in a way that now has an eternal impact on African-American students at the University of Southern Mississippi. And so Ocella McCarthy, in my opinion, is a hero. And it goes to your point of no matter how large or how small, you can have an impact and leave a legacy in such a manner and with the spirit of why we wrote this book. Listen, Kenneth, I appreciate you, man. Uh, tell people where they can get the book. And you want to for sure, for sure talk about the uh, how they can start get started. On the technology their, platform, yeah, certainly. The technology so platform. you can get the book on a couple of places. One is beforeiletgo.com, mm -hmm. um, just like it sounds, beforeiletgo.com. And typically, I can personally sign those. You may not get it as fast. But you could also get it on Amazon and look up this title, um, Prepared Before I Let Go, under my name, Kenneth Kelly, on, under Amazon, but preferably if you do it under Before I Let Go Again, I will get the opportunity to sign that book and you can send a note how you would like that sign. Again, it may take a little longer, but we typically have done that. And to the point you ask about the platform, so 
For me, it was important to write about the book, but it was also going to be important that we put a tool out there to really democratize this topic in such a way that any family could reach it. So for $49.95 per year as a subscription, you can actually, for a family, husband and wife, could do a will, healthcare directed, and power of attorney. All of it can be stored electronically. So what you could do is, if I was doing it in James, I wanted you to be my executor, I right. can put your email there so you have access to it automatically. If wow. my house is on Zillow, it will automatically show you that house and show you the value of that house as it change goes up and down just like in Zillow. I can upload my mortgage in such a way that you don't have to go find or come to my house, figure out where my papers are. Right. All of your bank accounts can be stored there, API, so you can see the value of all of those bank accounts real time. So the point is we created a technology platform that will allow anyone mm -hmm. to come in behind their lost one or their loved one and manage their affairs in a very effective manner so that they don't have to be on what I call the treasure hunt. Mm -hmm. looking for the boxes and looking for the safes of where documents and papers could be. All your life insurance policies could be uploaded, retirement benefits, all of mm -hmm. those things can be uploaded in such a way that your family can go to one place and basically have it in that electronic, um, uh, electronic deposit box. Kenneth Kelly, prepare before I let go, preserving your possessions through proper planning. I really appreciate you. This book is gold. <laughs> Yes, and let me say this. I didn't say this. That's on the website, mylegacyitems.com. Okay. I purposefully named that because I want everyone to know you can have a legacy or you will have a legacy. It's the question is, what would that legacy be? So mm -hmm. mylegacyitems.com is the location of that platform. Yes, everybody listening, make sure you go sign up for that. Grab the book and just go tell someone and share this video with someone because... What it could do is preserve the wealth that you are working so hard for. We, we wake up every day, go to our nine to five, or we're busting our tail to start our business. And it doesn't make sense to do all of that and to have 15, 20% of it, 30% of it taken away through the probate court because of proper planning or the lack thereof. So Kenneth Kelly, I really appreciate you. Guys, make sure you go grab the book. It's on his website, beforeiletgo.com. Also, you can get it on Amazon, but I would tell you guys to go get it and get a signed copy because this is going to be a part of your legacy. Great. Thank you, James. Enjoy being with you. Appreciate it.